We are going to be back in, uh, in Luke. We're going to be in chapter 2, page 857 in the Bibles in front of you. We've been tracking through this verse by verse, um, but we are going to jump some verses because Christmas Eve, the two evening services, will do the first part of Luke 2. Um, if you come Christmas morning on Christmas Eve, there are different services, and so for those that have space and capacity and want to, um, Christmas Eve morning, we're going to look at Mary's song back in chapter one that we had to just skim over if you were here, and then we'll do some different stuff in that evening, and then the last Sunday of December, we'll actually finish out the remaining verses of Luke 2. But before we dive into God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us and in your generosity, having it recorded in this book. Make your word come alive to us. It is, it is your living and active word. But we need your spirit to humble us and to make us hungry for your word. What we ask is every single week, what every single person in this room needs more than, than anything else, whether they... Um, they're here, and they're not sure why they're here, whether they haven't been in a service like this in a long time. Maybe this is the first time they've walked through the doors of a church building. Or they've been walking with you for 32 years. They've memorized huge swaths of the Bible, or whether they, they would struggle to find the gospel of Luke. God, wherever we're at and however we come, what all of us need most is to leave this time more confident in what Jesus has done, more full of hope with what he promises to do. So, Holy Spirit, would you lift him high that all of our hearts might be drawn after him? In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 2, verse 21 through 38. This is God's holy and flawless word. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then when time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. 
She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Feel free to grab a seat. Shared this story before, but it was a few years ago. I was um, actually working on a sermon and uh, sitting in my house and I was prepping and my phone rings and it was, it was my wife, Katie, you know, caller ID comes up, it's Katie, I answer the phone, but it wasn't Katie's voice. What I heard was, I'm here with your wife, she passed out, we called an ambulance, get to the hospital. And so I get this call and obviously began to kind of lose my head a little bit. I jump in the car, I began to drive and, and every red light was excruciating, just sitting there. And, and you, you get behind slower drivers, and you're just losing your mind. And I'm racing to the hospital, and I, and I park, and I get there, and I, I jump out of my car, and I'm like, I, I was kind of trying legally to track her on find my phone as I was driving. And so I get there, and, and, and I know the ambulance isn't there yet, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and it's just taking forever, and I'm standing by the doors, and then finally the ambulance that she's in backs up right outside the emergency room doors at St. Joe's, and, and they open it up, and I see my wife in there, and, she, and she's just obviously in so much pain. And they wheel her out, and they go through the doors, and then the door shut, and I can't get in, because the policy at that time is I can't get in. So I just did the only thing I could do is I just went back to my car. I just sat in the parking lot at St. Joe's for hours, just waiting. Just waiting for a phone call, wondering what happened. There's a type of waiting that's really hard. That's a type of waiting that's hard. A lot of our life is spent waiting, waiting for a second interview to the job we really want. Waiting for a third or a fourth date for the person that we really want. Waiting for the lab results to come back from a test that you've had done or someone you love has had done. Waiting for the scans to come back. Waiting for vacations, waiting in traffic, waiting for dinner. Waiting for your one more to to be curious about Christ. Waiting for Jesus to return to set all things right. Because we spend so much of our lives waiting, it makes sense to learn how to wait well. One of my all-time favorite Christmas hymns, we just sung it before um, this sermon, is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It was written by Charles Wesley in 1744, and it was inspired in part by this portion of scripture from Luke chapter 2. And it captures the Advent theme, Advent meaning arrival of waiting, that we're, we're, we're longing, we're waiting. The entire history of the world was waiting for Christ to be born, and now all of us are waiting for Christ to return captures this theme of waiting, but not just waiting, waiting well or waiting with, with hope. Now, if you follow British uh, soccer or football, um, it's, there, there's a phrase that's used often in English soccer, it's the hope that kills you. And if you're a fan of British soccer, you know um, this phrase comes out often towards the end of a season because in, in English uh, football, one of the interesting things is there's all these different leagues, you know, and it's like you could think of a American sports where, where you have minor league or single A or double A or triple A or, or majors. You have Bellingham United, our local soccer team, this very semi-pro team all the way up to MLS and, and the Sounders. Well, in, in British sports, the way this works is there's this thing called promotion and relegation. 
division. So you can be in the very top division, the very top group, and let, if you come in last in the league out of the 20 teams that are there or the bottom few and you don't win the playoffs, you will be what's called relegated. You will be dropped down from the Premier League to what is known as the championship. And you can go from the championship down to uh, two, down to one. Down, I mean, you, can go, you basically can go all the way down to some rec team. And the idea works the other way too is that you can go from, from a team where it's all people just like buddies out playing soccer all the way up to the very top. And so this promotion and relegation is always on the table if your team is right on the cusp. Man, I hope we don't get dropped. We don't want to go down from the big league to the smaller league. Man, if we could go up, that would be incredible. And so as you get to the end, if your team is close, those last couple games are gut-wrenching. And one of the lines that, that English people will use a lot is it's the hope that kills you. Like, don't hope they go up. Don't hope they stay. It's almost better to try to protect yourself and have zero expectations. But is that all we're offered? Like zero expectations. Don't hope for good things because you'd just be let down. Of course not. We have something so much better offered by God. There's a big contrast when we think of the word hope between what I'll dub a, a secular hope and a biblical hope. Or a hope that's, that's given by those that don't have a God and the promises of God. A, a secular hope is just a wish. It's a desire for something good to, to happen, but with, with, with no guarantee. Biblical hope is certain. Biblical hope is confidence that God will do what he says he will do someday. That's what we're offered. Not a hope that, that kills us, but a hope that's sure. As we think about waiting, one of the things we might think through this confidence in what God says he'll do is what does he say he'll do? Like, is there something that you can bank your life on that won't disappoint you, that won't let you down? Now, you can hope your team wins, but what if they don't? You can hope the, the lab report comes back clean, but what if it doesn't? You can hope the company calls you and offers you the job, but what if they go in a different direction? You can hope that the person you love loves you back, but what if they don't? You can hope the university that you want to get into lets you in, but what if they say no? And on and on and on. I love this insight from Courtney Doctor in an article, Hope for Waiting Hearts. If your hope is set on getting what you want, then you stand the chance of being deeply disappointed even disillusioned. But if we hope in the one who is utterly good, completely for us, whose word is sure, and whose ways are perfect, then that hope will never disappoint. Psalm 130 verse 5 says this, I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. As I'm waiting, the way I'm going to do this is by placing my hope on the thing that I know won't disappoint. That psalm, that verse tells us where we can find a hope that doesn't let us down, his word, meaning his promises. What has God promised to do? And that's the backbone for Simeon and for Anna in this text. What they were waiting for, what they were longing for, what they were hoping for were things that God had said he was gonna do. In verse 25, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was waiting for the very thing that God had promised, to console, to comfort. 
If you trace through the history of this, it means to, to show tenderness for all of the aches that uh, a sin-soaked world have brought, whether personally produced or externally inflicted, to comfort us in all the losses and the sadnesses of life. That word consolation is picked up a number of times in the Bible, Isaiah 66, 13, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Like a tender mom coming in and recognizing the skin knees and the hurts and the bruises and the bumps and the nightmares. God says, I'm going to do that for you. Isaiah 41 through 2, comfort, comfort, or consolation. Consolation, my people says, God, we're hurting. Verse 2, speak tender to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. From that verse, we see at least two aspects of this consolation, that those who are battle-weary and those who are stained in sin are comforted. Comfort for the hurts done by others, comfort and consolation for the hurts that we do as we offend God and wound ourselves and wound others, comfort. Somehow, somehow God, come and make it right. There's been a lot of headlines, God, make it right. Now, when I hear the word consolation, I immediately go to um, fourth grade when I would skip school. I'd pretend to be sick so I could stay home and watch game shows. Anyone else? <laughs> and when I think of consolation, I think of the consolation prize. You're watching, you know, the prizes, right? You're watching something, and it's like if you picked the wrong door, you didn't get the big prize, but you got the consolation prize. And so it's like they open the door, you know, you should have picked door two. Behind door two is a new car. And they open it up, and, but you pick door one, so you still get a prize, and it's like a toaster. You know, it's, that's not the kind of consolation God is offering. What he's offering is, is, is the best. What's behind that door is the very best, the better gift, the better prize. Often better than a lot of the things that we actually do set our hopes on here. Just consider how the Bible ends. Second to last chapter, Revelation 21, four through five. He will wipe away. This is God's word. This is where our hope, this is what we can cement all of our confidence in. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. I've heard these words so many times. It's so easy to grow numb to them. Like the very thing, the shadow that's over all of us all the time that we constantly, it will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, behold, I am making all things new. And that promise is whispering all the time. Everything we most deeply need, Jesus promises to provide. And then verse 38, towards the end here where Anna points to another thing being waited for, and it ends with this, the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, Anna is waiting for the very thing God promised. He promised to send a redeemer, a Messiah king, a savior who is strong, that can redeem us. He can purchase us out. He can release us and bring us freedom from every enemy. The enemies out there, the enemies of sin, the tyrannies that, that reign, that there would be a redemption, a deliverance. We saw this back, if you were here, as we've been going through this study, back at the end of Luke chapter 1, this, this 
song that's sung over Christ that the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation from the lineage of David. Saying this strong redeemer, Messiah, king is coming to defeat every enemy. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. No doubt there's many things we want. There's so many good things we want. Sometimes we get them. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get them and then we lose them. But here's the promise of this text. Learn to want what Simeon and Anna wanted and you will never be disillusioned or disappointed. Oh, there will be sadnesses and hurts. But the promises of what he says he will do will never leave you distraught. Now, our degree of hope, it's directly tied to our sight of God's promises. I'll say that again. Our degree of hope is directly tied to the, the degree of our sight, our, our grasping on of God's promises. And I'll give you at least three things from this text that we can actually do to put into our lives to see him better, um, starting with something Mary and Joseph did from verse 33. They hear this, this song of praise that Simeon is singing over their son. Verse 33 says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I love that word. It means to be amazed, to be caught up in wonder, to be just blown away. I love that Jesus' parents are marveling at what's said about their son. And I was challenged by it, asking how often do I marvel at Jesus? Let me give you at least two things from this text worth marveling about. One is his incarnation, that God became flesh. I mean, we, 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 if you've been a Christian, if you've been a human, I mean, you know, you know this time of year as we lead up towards Christmas, even if you're not a, a believer, you at least know the, the background of what it's being celebrated, that we believe that God came in flesh. I mean, that is a stunning thing, that he would take on flesh. In this text, that he would go on the eighth day and be circumcised like any other Jewish boy would be circumcised. And he would come and be presented at the temple. As, he would just go through the, the ordinary, normal things that any human baby would do. It's God cooing and crying. <laughs> Amen. Hark the herald angels sing has such deep theology. Mild, he lays his glory by. The one whom the highest heavens cannot contain, wrapped in a little eight-pound baby. He stooped. He laid his glory aside. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 captures this. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't just cling to it, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's a stuff. He emptied himself. He didn't lose his deity, but he wrapped himself in humanity in such a miraculous way. I'm not going to unpack all those verses from Philippians. They are stunning, incredible, but he became a little eight-pound baby, six-pound baby, nine-pound, five-pound baby. God humbled himself. It's really laying on me, verse 28 of this text, just for whatever reason, hit me in a different way this, this, this week. If, you know, Simeon, he comes and he took up in his arms. He sees Christ, he sees Jesus, and he takes him up in his arms. 
Simeon is holding Jesus. The creator in this moment is being held by his creation. That, that's stunning. The one who made all things in whom all things hold together is now being picked up by some guy. The early church used to call Simeon Theotokis, the God receiver. When God chose to become a baby, he chose to have to be carried around. He chose to have to be fed and changed and taught and lulled to sleep. A.W. Tozer has this insight. He says, need is a creature word. Because God has no need of anything. He is the self-existent one. And yet when he wrapped himself in humanity and laid his glory by, he said, I will put myself in a place of need. When Owen, my, uh, my, my oldest son, my second oldest, was born, I was serving as a pastor at Christ the King in town. And as most births happen, I mean, you get towards the due date, you're kind of ready, you got your bag packed and all that stuff, but there's always loose ends at work when you have to like just you know, you go have this baby. And so after a couple of days, uh, Katie, there was a couple hours where she's like, hey, feel free, go to the office, go type some loose ends so you can be fully home. And so I go to the office and I walk into the, 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 the building and I walk back to where the offices are and I open up the door to kind of the, where all the offices in this hallway and, and Grant, who's the senior pastor over there and then a guy named Sam who was leading music at the time, they saw me and they both get up and they just, one grabbed one side, one grabbed the other and they just picked me up. They just picked me up like a little child, and they, they walked me out of the, the, the church. And Now, Grant, Grant is, is not huge, but he, he's strong. Sam is a mountain of a man, and I just stood there with my little feet dangling over the carpet. I can't do anything. I can't resist. I can't do anything. And they take me outside. They get me to my car, and they said, you just had a baby. Go home. Stop working. It was nice of them and emasculating. <laughs> Simeon, the God receiver, holding God. There's another detail in this text that speaks to the humility of Christ. Okay, you decide to lay your glory by, you become human, but at least be born into a family with with a reputation, with power, with cultural clout, with something. Most of us would likely choose that. But there's a detail in this text that shows that Jesus for sure chose not to do that. It's this offering that's given. They go in the temple and and they go through this process. This was very standard, very common. The first son that was born is offered wholly to the Lord. And so then you go and you go to the temple, present him. You offer something so you keep him kind of symbolically to to God. But you also have this act of purification. And that's the offering we see in this text that you would bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. But that's actually not the main offering. That was just a concession that God gave to people who couldn't afford what would have been seen as the better offering, which was a lamb. And so what we see even in this text is that they came. Mary and Joseph had very little means from a, from a punchline of a joke town. Jesus came, the Bible tells us, with no former majesty that we should desire him. He likely chose to come and not be visibly attractive in the way that we might see, from a prestigious family that we might want, with means that we would long for. It's incredible. It's astounding. And then we have the crucifixion. We have the cross. If I finish the lyric from Hark the Herald, it goes like this. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. That men and women don't have to die. 
How Jesus died in our place, that's actually in this text. It's alluded to here in, in verse 5. This little parenthetical statement is Simeon is talking, and then he tells Mary, and a sword will pierce through your soul too. Most scholars believe this is pointing to the moment when Mary would be at the foot of a cross watching her son be crucified. And as a spear did go into Christ's side, her own soul would be so wounded. Mary will endure this as she watches her son be nailed to a tree. Charles Wesley wrote another one of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? And he wrote it really quickly after coming to faith, after his conversion. I think this is either the first or second hymn he he wrote right after coming to faith, and it captures his wonder and amazement that God would save him. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? Who caused his pain for me? Who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? The God, you would die for me? The Christ, you would suffer for me, even though I'm the cause of your suffering? That you upon the cross, the only sinless one, the only one that never deserved to have God's wrath poured out would become a a sin offering for me? How can it be? There's no amazing love. That's the only, what's the answer? That thou, my God, the creator dying for the creation, not just being held, but willing to be crucified. Oh, we got to wonder. We got to be amazed. This is, all, this is all grace in this text. It talks about Simeon's song is the salvation you have prepared for us, that God has done it. A light to the Gentiles and to Israel, that his, his grace is for the globe, for every tribe and tongue and people, no matter where you come from, no matter your background, no matter what you've done. Oh God, how could, you, how could you die for me? And God tells us that he took him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That is stunning. That he would die in the place, not just of those that are, are kind and helpful, but the Bible tells us for those that were enemies. Enemies. The way we get in on it is just need. That we need consolation, that we need a rescue. My encouragement to all of us, and this is as much to my own heart as anyone else's, don't let the gospel become so familiar that you lose the wonder. That a holy, holy, holy God would come down, lay his glory by, and die. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. It's probably one of my favorite series. It's written by C.S. Lewis and centered around um, four, four uh, kids to begin with. They, they grow up, two sons and, and, and two daughters. One of the daughters' name is Lucy and a lion named Aslan who images Christ. He's a type of, of Christ. And there's this scene uh, where Lucy is back in this land called Narnia in the fourth book uh, in Prince Caspian. And, and Lucy, after she's been gone from Narnia for a while, she's come back to, to Earth, and now she's back in Narnia, and she runs into to Aslan, and we, they have this exchange. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, 
She's just so excited to see him. And Aslan says, welcome, child. Lucy replies, Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan answers, that is because you are, little one. Not because you are, Lucy says. I am not, says Aslan. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Let me ask the question again. How often do you marvel at Jesus? To grow in your knowledge of him. The more any of us do, the bigger he will appear. It's not the bigger he becomes. He, 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 he is, is infinitely grand. But the more we see him, the greater, the grander, the more gracious, the more glorious in our sights. And guess what will happen? The bigger the hope. The bigger the hope. So we want to marvel. Here's, here's another thing that we do. Verse 37, we see this with Anna's response. Um, down in verse 37. And as the window until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. She worshiped. Marvel and, and worship. And more specifically, what she was doing is what's known as corporate worship, which is what we're doing. When you gather with God's people and those that are curious about God and you lift up Jesus and we sing and we pray and we confess and we receive communion and we hear God's word and we, we practice fellowship and we do all those things. Let me give you just a f- few comments on this. First, no doubt you should worship anywhere and everywhere, but what's in this text is a specific type, corporate worship. Second, it's meant to be really regular. She never missed a service. She did not depart from the temple day or night. And this is not to put any burdens on you. I want to hear this as invitation here in a minute. Third, it was deeply heartfelt. She worshiped with fasting and prayer. She wasn't trying to earn something from God. There's, I love the way John Piper talks about fasting, that fasting rightly understood before Christ isn't to earn something. It's kind of a love sickness for him. It's like there's just something this world can't satisfy and so I, it just opens me up to the reality that only Christ can. And so with earnestness, she's, she's, she's worshiping God. Let me try to put this all together with a question. Why is corporate worship so important to hope or to waiting well? Years ago, I saw a, um, it was an opinion piece out of a newspaper from, from England. And someone wrote in and said, um, all right, it's over. I'm done going to church. I've been doing it for over 50 years, and in all that time, I've heard at least 2,500 sermons. I can only really remember a few of them, so I'm done. It's not worth my time. End of the piece. The next week, someone else writes in a, a, a response to this opinion, and he says, I've been married for over 50 years. My wife has cooked me at least 15,000 meals. I can only really remember a few of them, but I'm not dead. <laughs> I just thought it was a... <laughs> It's, it's given me sustenance. I can't point to all of it, but it's fed me day in, day out. I love that insight because it's drawing out something really important about corporate worship and a setting of expectation. It's not the firework moments in a service that are most vital. Praise God when those happen. It's just the regular exposure. It can save your life. According to one study from Vanderbilt University, and now in quotes, middle-aged, ages 40 to 65, adults, so middle-aged adults, both men and women who attend church or other houses of worship, reduce their risk for mortality by 55%. Another study from Harvard said the same things. From these studies, there's an article published in the um, 
in USA Today, and the title was this, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. Now, you might ask, is it causation or correlation? I'd probably say it's both of them working in concert with one another. But regardless, corporate worship, it's good for your health physically, but also spiritually. Why? It keeps the promises of God in front of you. That thing that some often feels like a whisper that the world drowns out, it makes them front and center and loud. That Christ has died, that Christ is risen. Oh, Christ, he is coming again. It's an ongoing reminder of who God is and what God does and what God promises to do. I might suggest to you, and I read this a number of places, and so I don't think I'm standing alone, that this might be the most important hour of the week. It doesn't need to be the most dazzling, the most entertaining, the most, it's just the most important. And if you were going to choose just one spiritual discipline, one, one activity, one means of grace, one thing that we do to try to get the things of God more real to us, not to earn, but to enter more deeply into them, you might choose this. Let me give you some reasons why. It includes so many of the other spiritual disciplines, Bible intake, prayer, reflection, confession, Singing. I love how Augustine says it. He who sings prays twice. We're confessing our theology. It includes fellowship. It includes hospitality. We get to, to give of our resources and our time. We get to gather. And all of this in the span of like an hour. And I know some of you are thinking, Rob, it's never an hour. Okay, in the span of an hour and 12 minutes. But this is the most important hour and 12 minutes of your life. We gather and we get to see marveling happen. Think back on Anna for 80 years. She hasn't missed a Sunday. As it were, quote unquote. She likely doesn't remember what happened in each and every one of them. But here she's clinging to the promises of God. Now, there's debate about how, how old she was. The, the, the text is a little bit um, ambiguous. It could be that she got married probably in her teens. She was married for seven years, so maybe about 20. And then so she was there until she was 84. Uh, but another way of translating, she, she actually, from the time she was 20, she didn't depart for another 84 years. So she could be like 84 or she'd be like 100 and something. Whatever the case may be, she, she, she has been there a long time waiting. And this regular exposure, it kept the promise of God fresh. It kept it alive. It does the same for us. It's really hard to drift from God when you're with God's people regularly. It's really hard to drift from the promises of God when they're proclaimed regularly. Now, let me connect corporate worship and Anna with one more of the things we get to do to nurture hope in our lives. We get to wonder and we get to worship And then what we do is we get to use words with one another. Again, look at what Anna does here in this text. She's worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And then verse 38, and coming up at that very very hour, she began to give thanks to God. So she's worshiping and then to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's speaking God's truth to to other people. She's proclaiming those promises to others. I love how Martin Luther once said, he says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. The same is true with our worship and our words. God God is self-existing, contained, fully satisfied in himself. But you know who needs that? You know who needs your worship and your words? Your neighbor. 
the people around you. Verse 8, she began to give thanks and to speak of him, speak of Jesus, speak of this Messiah King, this strong Savior. To all those who were waiting the redemption of Jerusalem, she was worshiping and witnessing. Years ago, I got a text from a dear family in our, our church, and it was a big medical emergency in their family, and, and the, the, the dad was just like, I know that God can heal, but I can't even bring myself to pray it. And so I texted him, and I called him, and I said, that's why God gave you a church, because we will pray for you. It's happened so many times where we get to piggyback on the faith of those that God puts around you. It doesn't take a huge um, amount of imagination to, to, at this temple scene, it wasn't just these four or five people between you know, Mary and, and Joseph and Jesus and Simeon and Anna. It was filled with people. And there were some with the kind of faith that, that, that Anna had to, to keep her going for eight decades. But there's probably a lot of people that needed to piggyback on that faith. We need others to speak God's word to us and to help us believe. We need others to worship right next to us. We need to see others marvel at the excellencies of Christ so that when our hearts grow numb or cold or when we stop believing as much or we're doubting in a way that we haven't doubted maybe in a long time or the story of the gospel just isn't, it is, it's not incredible to us anymore. Oh, we see someone else and it moves us. This is a late edition, but this line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from Life Together, it's a longer quote, but it's worth quoting. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or a brother and sister. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. And this wonderful line, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother is sure. And what Anna was doing to all those hearts that were gathered that were maybe a little less sure as she praised and she rejoiced and she spoke as she made it a little more sure. We get to marvel. And as we do, the, the, the promises become more real. The hope becomes more sure. We get to have regular exposure. And as we do, the promises become clear. The hope becomes more sure. And where we doubt it, we get to say it to one another over and over and over and over again so we might believe it a little bit more. All right, so I'm sitting there at the hospital in my car. I'm sitting in the parking lot at St. Joe's, and I am waiting for hours, wondering, worried, scared, um, not knowing yet how it's going to turn out. Here's what I wonder. If when I got that first phone call, I'm here with your wife. She passed out. The ambulance is on the way. Get to the hospital. If I would have also had this punchline added to it, and she's going to be totally okay. How would that have changed those hours of waiting? We have a promise from Christ. It's going to be okay. We actually have something better than that. It's going to be infinitely wonderful. How might that change, not just the hours, but the years of waiting? It's not the hope that kills you. It's no hope that crushes you. It's hope that holds you and restores you and revives us. Everything is going to be unbelievably 
more than okay. Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father, would you, through the Spirit, um, do for us what you did for those in this text, that you would console us, comfort us, that you would show us our great Redeemer, and that we would marvel. That the dazzling work of Christ would be more brilliant than sometimes the shadows that we find ourselves in. And that you would teach us in this place, God, how to rejoice and enjoy the very, very good things that are around us, but to not set our hope on them because they can't hold it, but to set it upon you who promises to never drop us, who is utterly trustworthy and altogether lovely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, we're going to respond as we do every single week as a church by receiving communion together. Um, in this room, there's, there's uh, four stations of communion set up. On this side, there is bread and wine. On this